What is up, everybody? Welcome to Comic Book Club. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And we are coming to you live from a couple of places on the internet. We are live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter. Maybe you're listening later on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. That is all good all together now in the hood. Now, Pete, our third, is away at a business conference this week. Business conference, which a lot of quotes around that. Very mm-hmm. unclear what that means. And let's remember the last time he went to a big conference, he had a bag with uh, full of knives and weed. Yes. So that could mean anything. <laughs> which sounds like a joke, except it isn't. Except so. it's real, because he and Alex went to a Philly Comic Con. Yeah, it was Philly Comic Con, and he got stopped. No, first he was like, oh, I'm really nervous about going in through security. I was like, why are you nervous? He was like, because my bag is full of knives and weed. And I was like, what? <laughs> You're joking, right? And it turns out, no, he wasn't, in fact, not joking. So yeah. Who who brings a gun to a knife fight? It's who brings uh, knives to a comic fight. Yes, exactly. Well, you're going to win, probably. That's the big thing. Yeah. Uh, that is too bad that he's not here. Don't worry about it, though. We're going to have a great show for you anyway. We have awesome guests on the show. Why don't we bring in our first one here? He Let's. is the co-creator of The Last Count of Monte Cristo. Ladies and gentlemen, Isaiah Jebba Everett. Hello. How are you? Yeah. Hello. What's up, guys? Uh, not much. Thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, now we were supposed to have your artist, uh, Tristan, on the show. Unfortunately, he, I think, has some connection issues and may not be able to make it. But I'm still excited to talk about this book anyway. Uh, the way it is described in the blurb, at least, and you tell me more, but an Afrofuturist take on The Count of Monte Cristo from the pages that I've seen and the stuff that I've read. Uh, it's awesome and yeah. a wild take on this classic story. Um, what did I miss and what was the inspiration behind this book? <laughs> um, I don't, well, there is a section where there are guns and knives in a bag. And they're going, no, I'm joking. Um, no, it's perfect. <laughs> We've covered it. We're living it. <laughs> living the dream. No, I mean, I think you got it. Um, you know, the inspiration was a guy named John Jennings, who's the uh, editor-in-chief of Megascope Comics. He's an imprint of um, Abrams. And um, he came to me, we collaborated on another project called Box of Bones, which is sort of like a, a Tales from the Crypt meets Black History. And he was like, hey, man, um, I really want to do um, a Count of Monte Cristo, but in outer space. And I was like, outer space is boring as hell, dude. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm like, I, Shut this down. Is, yeah, it's just boring sometimes. Like, it's empty. There's nothing right, going on. You know? What are you going to do there? But I'm like, but if you talk about like a post-climate change Earth, you know, like 300 years in the future or so, um, maybe that's interesting. Maybe we can talk about what the climate looks like, how people have adapted, how animals have adapted, and all that fun, weird stuff. And, you know, the, the tagline that I love is, you know, what's the role of uh, revenge on a dying world? Um, mm. So that's kind of that's how we, we came together on it. Well, also, so you touched on this a little bit, but talk about how, uh, not to focus on the blurb, but like taking a specifically an Afrofuturist take on the story, how does it change the context? How does it change the themes from the original text? Here's the funny thing. Not much. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're doing, a, I was doing research on, on The Count, and there's this great book called The Black Count that came out that was all about... Um, Alexander Dumas, the author's father. And it turns out this guy was black uh, from the Caribbean. 
they're half black from the Caribbean, black now, as I said. Um, and he was like uh, a rival of Napoleon's. Um, he like fought in all of his wars. He was like this celebrated general. And so, um, you know, and thinking about it, I was like, well, all I really want to do is take, you know, the off the original author's father, who was obviously the the inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo, the Three Musketeers, the Man in the Iron Mask, all these things, and I just kind of want to highlight the blackness, so to speak, mm. and and do it the way that Dumas did it, which is um, not really not really talk about it so much as show it. So this all takes place off of the east coast of Africa, and it's not like we're sitting there being like. Yeah, this is not going to be out on Blackity Street on Black Day and you know, Black Clothing. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that, right? It's yeah. just like, you know, in my script, what I said was um, all characters need to be of uh, African, Indian, um, or Asian origin in design. Yeah. That was, wow. well, was kind of it. Yeah. Uh, well, given, uh, I know he isn't here, but uh, since you brought up the design, let's talk about that. What does Tristan Roach bring to the project? What was your collaboration like? Oh my God, have you seen the book? I mean, what did he bring to <laughs> yeah. the project? Right? He brought, the, like, look at the the colors alone, the design. Yeah. It's, it's popping. And that's all him, man. Like, that's all Tristan. Like, that little, that little lapel thing that looks like two snakes around him. I mean, that's all him. Um, the design of the Monte Cristo, which in this version is a, is a ship, you know, with like solar sails and it's like the, the future, which is behind him. Like he designed that. He brought this amazing sort of, um, I call it like anime, anime by way of um, the Caribbean sort of design, you know, like mm. very bright, vibrant colors, um, lots of flowing and moving design, but very much manga influenced and, you know, sort of. Um, that sort of Asian angle, but like when it comes to human bodies, pulling a lot more from traditional Caribbean culture um, and tradition. Yeah, I mean the 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 collaboration was freaking seamless. You know, I I you know tried to do my best to write a because like Alan Moore scripts. You know, you write like thirty five pages of script for one page of actual comic, and he just took it and ran with it. He was like, "Yep, how does this sound? How does this look? How does this sound? How does this?" And like. You know, every five days, we get this like dump of pages that were absolutely amazing. He's like, I'm still working on it. I'm like, stop working, dude. We've done this is perfect. Yeah. Uh, the original book, uh, Count of Monte Cristo, is of, like a very long revenge. It's like, yeah. like a light. You're like, what do I want to spend my life on? <laughs> a really great burn. Uh, so how does that how does that play into like you say a world that is um, sort of coming to an end? How do you know when to pull the trigger on your revenge if you're like? Uh-oh, we only got a couple of weeks left. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when plotting it out, um, you know, for, I was fortunate that I didn't have to say, okay, this is when the world ends. Um, but it is kind of, he's one of the few people, I mean, you can make that argument today that, like, the world is ending. Fair. Right? The world is ending until it ends, right? And so it's this interesting dynamic of um, what are, how are people getting by in their day-to-day and this character has this knowledge of like, oh yeah, we don't have too many more day to days. And so what's important at that moment, right? Like, um, and I think initially, you know, if you've been imprisoned unjustly by people who you thought were your friends, you know, years ago, it's kind of like, no, I want to see you cry. I want to see your children cry. I want to see your children's <laughs> dogs cry, right? After you get one or two of those, you're kind of like, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I you get the dogs. Thing. You know, like once the dogs are gone, what are you doing? 
you know, you gotta you gotta have a little limit. So, so I think um, Jamal in this one, he kind of he kind of re- realizes like, hey, maybe it's time. Sorry, Dante. Um, he kind of realizes it's time. Um, it's time for the revenge to end. And at the same time, he does that. One of those kids is like, oh yeah, you're the one who screwed over my family. So now you gotta die. So then we have that final tension. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, I was curious to hear you talk about working with Abrams in particular, because I feel like, and maybe this is from our perspective of the show, but I feel like they don't get as much love necessarily from like the mainstream comic press, but they're sneakily one of the best publishers in the comic game. So uh, what brings you to them? I assume it was partially that. And uh, what's it like working with them? You know, it was definitely Megascope. It was definitely um, John Jennings, like I said before. He started this imprint. Uh, specifically about, you know, telling stories about people of color for people of color. Um, and so I was like, you know, dope. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I think I qualify. Um, and it's just, I mean, like, I, I hate to sound like a hippie, but it's just been seamless. Like, it's just been, um, you know, folks who are loving the script. How often do you, as a writer, as a comic book writer, how often do you hear, like, the editor being like, I love this script. He's like, I wish mm. we could publish this wow. script. And I was like, oh shit, right? Um, yeah. So that was that was awesome. And then, I mean, they've been really good with timelines. They've been really good with like um, working with us. There wasn't a lot of uh, editorial, oh, you should do it this way or that way. You know, it's mostly like, hey, page count, you know, think about holdouts, think about like, you know, um, you know, two page spreads. Um, so just like walking us through the practicals, but they were very hands-off and very, very supportive. Um, I don't you know, have friends that have written for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, boom, all of them, and that is not the experience they have given to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you know, we'll see what happens when I write for somebody else. <laughs> Uh, well, this book is great. It is yeah. available everywhere now from Abram Books, Everywhere right? books are sold, yep, right. including your local bookstore. Excellent. And anything oh, else nice. you want to plug before we let you go? Any other projects coming up for you? Uh, there's also Box of Bones. Uh, volume 1 is out now. Volume 2 will be out in October. Uh, out by, uh, God, I can't remember. Rosarium, sorry. Out by Rosarium Press. Um, like I said, uh, Tales from the Crypt meets Black History. Uh, what happens when, um, when black blood is spilled on a box and demons are unleashed every time? How does that happen? How does that go throughout history? Um, yeah, it's a really fun book. Um, and then I got other stuff coming, but mostly novels. <laughs> uh, well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Congrats on the book. It is very cool, and uh, I'm looking forward to everything else from you. Awesome. Thank yeah, it looks much, great, man. man. Right. I appreciate it, Justin. Great All to right. have you. Later. All right, there we go. Once again, the book is called The Last Count of Monte Cristo. You can get it from Abrams Books everywhere that fine books are sold. Definitely check it out. Uh, a little later in the show, we're going to have Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is here, but we are going to bring in our second guest now. He's the writer of Voices from Krypton, the unofficial, unauthorized history of Superman. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Gross. Hello. Hello, General. Hey, that's a nice book. Yeah, uh, look at that. <laughs> nice cover. It's a, wait, hold it, uh, hold it sideways for anybody watching because it's a thick book too. It There's is a, it is a it, thick it, book. It yes. covers my face. <laughs> my brother being a wise ass decided to uh put it he's got the 69 mustang and he decided to put it behind the rear tire and he says this will work better than the thing i've got there you know the blocker the whole <laughs> yeah. the well, congrats <laughs> that's a sale that's there a whole other market for you're people. not kidding 
Yeah. Uh, so this book, this is an oral history of uh, Superman, and you have a lot of amazing voices in there. You have a forward from Brandon Routh and a afterward from Mark Wade, or did I switch those around? No, that's correct. That's that correct. correct. Yep. Uh, also, you talked to Tom Welling, a bunch of other people for the book. Um, I think I could tell you're a Superman fan based on the li uh, <laughs> life-size. <laughs> yeah, there's literally a life-size Superman behind you with a captain hat. There's an action comics on a spinner oh, yeah, rack. Yeah. You have a TV, which I assume is Superman themed as well. Uh, what <laughs> what was it like putting, <laughs> what, what spurred on this book and what was the process like putting together something that has decades and decades of history? So do I actually, decades and decades <laughs> of history. <laughs> It's really, I think, a combination of my 40 plus years as an entertainment journalist and my almost, well, I'm over 60, but my almost 60 years as a Superman fan. Mm -hmm. And the two of them really dovetailed perfectly for this book. I mean, I've written other books, uh, many other books, but this one is the one that is sort of the dream project for me. And in a sense, I've been writing it for 40 years because as soon as I got the opportunity to become an entertainment journalist, I started doing Superman related interviews amongst all the other ones I did. Mm -hmm. So I've accumulated contacts with people, interviews with people, many people who aren't with us anymore, uh, and was able to get all the new interviews, those interviews, pull it all together. And these oral histories are like doing a jigsaw puzzle. And that's really what this was. It's, it's taking the 250 voices and looking at those transcripts and trying to sort of jumble the quotes around until it's telling a cohesive history uh, that's covering 85, actually a little more than 85 years since before the character was created. Yeah, just reading through the book, it really is like you jump around so much and the organization of that must have been insane. Did you start with like chapters and you were like, oh, let me put this anecdote here. Oh, I want to hear from Jeff Loeb at this point. Like, how did how did that all come? It's, it's not really about I want to hear from Jeff at this point. What it really is doing the interviews and you start with one interview and you start taking the transcript and breaking it into subjects. So it's like, oh, he mentions this here. He meant, or, wow. you know, he mentions this here. He mentions this here. So you're building the categories, so to speak. I knew that it had to cover the whole history. So I knew that meant every phase of the comic, basically and every version of Superman, whatever media he took it in. And you got to realize since 1940 in the radio show, he's been in production in something uh, every decade since, which is just insane. Yeah. Uh, how many versions? So then you, so you take all those different interviews and then as obviously as you get the second person saying, oh, well, that's what he said or talked about. Well, let me put this quote here. And then the third person, oh, that goes there. And then you start jumbling it to make sure that it's the flow that it's like a mm -hmm. conversation which is amazing i can even do it because frankly i'm so disorganized in my life <laughs> i'm an idiot <laughs> i am an idiot savant when it comes to oral histories i don't know why but it's the one thing i look at and i can just start clicking the <laughs> the quotes together and i wish i could do that with the rest of my life but i can't so you know <laughs> i'll accept that uh, now, not not to go far afield for the book, we'll get back to it in a second, but I just want to ask before I forget, a couple of hours ago, yeah. they announced the casting for James Gunn's Superman Legacy movie. David Sweat is going to be the new Superman. Rachel Brosnahan is going to be Lois Lane. Given that you're so steeped in this world, what's your take on that? What's your uh, immediate feeling on this casting? Well, first of all, it's very funny because I just went on YouTube and started checking out like fan trailers that were done a month or two ago with David... <laughs> as Superman and some of them yeah. are really impressive. I mean, a couple yeah. of them really look great. 
and watching him and listening to his dialogue from other projects he's done, it sounds Superman-ish. You know what I mean? It sounds like I like the way he comes across. It doesn't hurt that the trailers had him in the Superman costume and stuff, so that's kind of <laughs> cool. But there's a sincerity about him, it seems. I don't really know his work, but it just he just projects this is a guy who cares. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need for Superman, I think. And as far as Rachel is concerned, she was great as Mrs. Maisel. I mean, I heard the concern about her and David is that she might be a little older than he is, so it may be an odd pairing. That's what they were saying. But as soon as I heard her and him, it seems like really great casting. I mean, usually they go for the unknowns, but she was, you know, she's known, but she's fantastic. So, yeah, I'm psyched. I think it's it's fun. Just the fact that it's moving forward in this way is exciting. And this is the thing. Like great creative swings. Yeah, and it does. And And that's the thing. It's like. My son wrote me and said, so what do you think of the casting and all this? <laughs> My answer to him was this, and, and I've said this before, but it's true. I go where the S goes. If, mm. <laughs> you know, if Henry's done, and I thought Henry was a very good Superman, I wasn't always happy with the material he got, but I thought Henry Cavill was a very good Superman. And you suddenly say, well, now this is the new guy. I'm like, okay, bye, Henry. You know, got to move on to the next guy. It's like James Bond to me. It's like whoever they announce after Daniel Craig, I'm not going to take a wait and see attitude. I'm going to go see the James Bond movie. So now, why do you think? Why do you think it's been so hard to really get Superman right? I feel like you know, everyone the Batman movies in the last like couple decades, say or thirty years, like the Batman movies seem to keep progressing. They're different, but they seem to work. Superman, it always feels like we're missing a piece. What do you think that is? As I a, think the piece, the is... most read Superman person that we've talked to. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, look, I liked Brandon Routh, for instance, as Superman in in. Uh, uh, Superman Returns. I do think they tried to model that movie too much after the Donner films and all that, but his portrayal was, I thought, wonderful. And that was a step in the right direction, I thought. But, you know, uh, besides the repetition of the old stuff. The problem now I find is, and they seem to be correcting this now in the comics and everything, is there was this period where everybody just was fascinated on Superman's red eyes flaring, like he's about to burn <laughs> you. Right. Mm-hmm. Or he's or he's <laughs> angry and he's angsty. I mean, that was the bad thing about Henry's portrayal, I thought, was every time he saved somebody, he looked like he was constipated. He hated using his powers. <laughs> That's that was the impression I got. Right. And I think going for that dark Superman all the time is a mistake because that's not what the character is like Batman v Superman. I mean, Henry, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but he is the one outside of Tyler on TV. But in the movies, Henry's sort of the representation for the last 10 years. So you put him in Batman v Superman, and when he's as sort of angst-ridden and dark as Batman is, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. The character needs, as corny and cliched as it is, the character needs to represent hope. It's like the moment of Brandon Routh in Crisis on Infinite Earths when they asked, you know, why do you have a black background to the S? And he says, because the black is the darkness and the red of the S is hope rising from it. And this is a guy who lost everything in that world, right? But they, I just, that's what's important to hold on to. And Tyler nails that, I think. And the writers nail that on Superman and Lois. Mm-hmm. They really mm-hmm. nail that character and that hopefulness of the character. No matter how dire things are, he's not ready to go dark and, and break somebody's neck or whatever it may be. Yeah, that, what, any example. Uh, what I, I love 
the, the highlighting that uh, Superman loves, there's a joy in him using his powers and saving people. And you know, I haven't heard it positioned that way. And that's, that's really true. Even if there's a struggle and it even gets dark at points, just that essential joy of being Superman, I think, has been missing for so long. And I agree with that. And I and I like Mark Wade and Jeff Loeb said two great quotes yes. to me, which aren't new quotes, I'm sure. But Mark's thing was, here's a man who has the power to do anything he wants to do. And he chooses to do what's right. Jeff Loeb's comment was, if Superman has has any angst at all, it's that he can't save more people. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of and I thought those two views of him was very were very interesting, you know, and. I have a feeling, look, people, a lot of people are ready to jump on James Gunn and cut him up for, you know, carve him up for uh, his previous projects or whatever. And he's wrong for Super and he's wrong for DC and all that stuff. I will take a wait and see attitude, but I also believe that they recognize this character has got to be nailed properly in this movie. Because Mm -hmm. otherwise there's not going to be a Superman movie again for a very long time. Well, and they're pinning the whole future on this movie. (laughs) Right. That's the funny thing. People always say, oh, he's such a hard car- character to relate to. He's a hard character to write or whatever it is. But every time they relaunch, they start with Superman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, true. think about it. Man of Steel launched it. In uh, animation, Superman, Man of Tomorrow launched it. And that was the beginning story, right? In the comics, they're, 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 they're sort of like have gone back in some ways to, to early stuff. That is just so funny to me that a character that supposedly is so hard is the one they turn to to say we're starting over and we're starting with Superman. It's also funny where it's like you want to you relate to Batman more, rich guy, <laughs> yeah. lo- no parents, murder all the time, lives in a cave. Oh, you okay? Yeah, we yeah. are in dark times. I will Fight, say that. Fights it's a clown. Times. Fights a uh, clown. The two quick things that I want to say about that just uh, just there's a discussion about Superman going into the public domain here. This is not exactly that, but part of the reason we reason to the Man of Steel rewatch podcast. Part of the reason they did Man of Steel, which I'm sure you know, but I don't know if our podcast listeners do, is they were essentially contractually obligated to, like if they didn't do it by, I think it was 2013. Is that right? Something like that? I have to be honest with you. I have not heard that. I mean, the point, and that doesn't mean that's not true. I just didn't hear it. Uh, But the point is, as I said earlier, I don't think it's contractual that they have kept Superman in production for all these sure. years. As far as 2013, I know that was a period where there's a lot of lawsuits and stuff going back and forth between the estate of Jerry Siegel and all. Mm-hmm. And we do get now, instead of just, I always like the smoothness of created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Now we have to get Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster by special arrangement with the C- Jerry Siegel estate. I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah. well, I'm not sure what cool. that is, yeah. right? It's a lot cooler when it was just created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. But. Yeah, the other thing that I'll throw out there, which I thought was an interesting detail, and again, we can get back to the book, but just while we're talking about this James sure. Gunn thing, and on the same note, uh, there was a thing, not in the article announcing the casting, but the one when they were talking about, here's sort of the final rundown of the casting that they mentioned, that apparently in James Gunn's Superman movie, Superman is not the first superhero in the world. The authority is actually there first and being active. And at first I was like, well, that's weird because that's not how it happens literally any other time. But the more that I thought about it, my guess here is that you essentially have a dark superhero team that's extreme yeah. in the and world. Superman is, is the answer. The answer exactly. The counterpoint. It's exactly. It's actually a great idea. So I, I can't wait for and, that. Uh, oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, and something that hasn't been attempted before. To have yeah. Superman be a counterpoint to something, to your point, Ed, like, it's always like, let's start with Superman, where it's like, he has to be first, and everyone's like, what is this? Right. And we're all past that as moviegoers and comic fans, for sure. Right. So it's like, yes, let's have him be the response to a darker world, like we're talking about we live in, sort of now. And so. let's put the John Williams theme as to Superman as, as the James Bond theme is to James Bond, please. Mm. Even Great if you switch it around... Get that theme in there because it it gets people revved up for this character, I think. Yeah. Uh, I got a little bit of a gimme here about the book because I know the answer is yes. But Derek Mainhart asked you, cover the never-filmed Nick Cage version in the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I, I had a lot of help from on that section with Holly Payne who did the, you know, produced The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, that wonderful documentary on that. And I did my own interviews with Kevin Smith. I had done an interview with Nicolas Cage some time ago. And Holly gave me permission to use anything I wanted from the, from the documentary. Oh, wow. So between That's my awesome. stuff and her stuff, we real, I think the chapter was really able to uh, uh, tell the story of the movie that never happened. And mm -hmm. uh, even got Jonathan Lemkin, one of the early writers on the project. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my goal in, in writing this book and includes the Superman Lives thing is to make sure not only was everything represented, but that the, in a sense there were a series of books in this one book. Like mm. the George Reeves show gets 25,000 words. The Christopher Reeve movies get 30,000 words. Smallville gets this many words. You know what I mean? It was the idea was to make sure that everything is fully represented and not just a paragraph saying, well, there was this thing. Even that terrible 1975 production of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, and <laughs> Superman gets interviews with uh, David Wilson and Leslie Ann Warren. I mean, mm. uh, talking about that not great production, but well, that kind of leads nicely into the next thing that I was going to ask you, which as, as we've been talking about uh, over the course of this conversation, Superman obviously is an ongoing thing. Like they have a TV show that's <laughs> just doing its finale tonight, I think. And then One there's Superman legacy uh, season finale. Yeah. And Superman legacy is coming out. There's comics coming out all the time. So, how do you decide where to end it? Is it just uh, the published date? Is Are you going to revisit it with a volume two at some point? What's your thought to process? To be continued. There? Well, I mentioned to the publisher, I said, you know what? Superman Legacy is coming out in 2025. We should think about a volume two of this. And the response I got initially was, it's almost 800 pages long. How much longer can we make it? And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm saying a separate volume there, because there yeah. could be a history of Lois Lane and Lex Luthor and Supergirl and Superboy and the new movie and the new and the my adventures with Superman TV show. It's ongoing. So, yeah. Would, can there be a volume two? I absolutely do. I want to write a volume two. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It was so funny because, you know, I finished a lot of these books like on Star Trek and Star Wars and James Bond and all these things, and I'm ready to move on. I mean, my love for it doesn't go away, but I'm like, I'm kind of done with that subject, you know, whatever it may be. When I finished, I mentioned to some friends that I finished Voices from Krypton, their response was, you must never want to hear the name Superman again. And my response was, no, I put on the John Williams theme the second I handed in the book and I just blasted it and uh, I'm ready to go. I mean, for some reason, like, I, I just love the character and, and uh, can write about him forever. There's so much to write about still. Awesome. Uh, that makes sense. I, though I'm curious if when you're talking about a Star Trek book, do you have like a Jean-Luc Picard that you slide in behind you and... Uh... No, no, this is, it's we read in our house. You know what it is? My wife always buys me for birthday, Christmas, Father's Day, whatever it may be. And everybody does. They buy me stuff with Superman on it, the S on it or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. I never buy this stuff. 
but people give it to me. So when we redid our house, my wife said to me, she goes, you know what? She's not into this stuff at all. But she said to me, and this is a keeper, right? She says, why don't we take our small living room and turn it into a Superman room for you? Oh. Wow. So we got the statue yes. and the comic rack, and there's a bunch of action figures and things, the statues and things that everybody buys me. And the book is over there, of course. Uh, so uh, amazing. Uh, awesome. Yeah, it's great. So. Uh, well, real quick, I forgot to do this at the beginning, uh, but I wanted to let you know we have a, and this is true, a professional chef, Brett Macris, aka Straight Bullet, who usually curates a cocktail for us each show. Sometimes he designs a cocktail, and uh, this week he designed the cocktail around your book and Superman in general, but it is a cocktail from Krypton, uh, <laughs> which he designed. It's dark rum, ancho rays, which is a spicy liqueur, uh, Campari, orange liqueur, lime juice, and mint leaves and it's supposed to evoke uh krypton uh, with the green i guess and then also just uh exploding flavors in your mouth because that's what happens to krypton ah, as well. so and little rockets shoot out of your mouth with babies exactly. in them. it's yeah. really weird sea rockets. yes <laughs> Uh, well, it's a very good one, uh, very delicious. I have one quick uh, audience question here that I'm going to yeah. throw out to you before we Whatever finish. Um, this is uh, maybe too hard. Do you have a favorite version of Superman? I mean, yeah, the cliche, of course, is going to be Christopher Reeve, right? If there is, when I see Christopher Reeve as Superman, there are two moments that stand out for me: the helicopter rescue in Superman the movie, and but really, my favorite Superman too when Lois is under the elevator in Paris and it's plummeting and he catches mm. it and her head snaps up. He looks at her and just goes, I believe this is your floor. And he smiles <laughs> at her. I love it. Right now, that being said, like I said earlier, I go with the S. So it's like, yes, Christopher Eve is my favorite, but the thing I enjoy and I, and after I saw the clip of David uh, as Superman today, you know, the, the fan clip, all I thought was, I cannot wait till somebody takes the John Williams theme intercuts again all the different versions of Superman from over the years, like they've done in many tributes. And he now will become part of that. And mm. I'm actually pretty psyched for it. I mean, I love that because again, it's this ongoing history that uh, probably will never stop unless they blow it with the movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's hope not. <laughs> so. <It's> great. <laughs> so awesome. True. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for chatting. Uh, you can check out the book at this point. It's out on stands. You can get it anywhere, right? Love that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a good summer read. Yes. And winter, you, too. It might carry it over to winter. Are you working yeah. on another one? Not necessarily another volume, but do you have any uh, upcoming projects? You want to yeah, there, there's an Indiana Jones book coming out. That's the next oh, oral history on oh, Indiana so Jones. Good. And I'm literally like a month away from wrapping up uh, Planet of the Apes. Ooh, uh, which I'm wow. very psyched for. I had done a book uh, back in 2001 called Planet of the Apes Revisited. And since then, there have been so many Planet of the Apes books, we wanted to figure something different to do. So we turned it in, we're turning it into an oral history and, of course, expanding beyond the original films to include Burton, the new trilogy, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the whole thing. So I'm pretty psyched about that. So awesome. Yeah, I'm moving wow. from one to the next to the next. <laughs> You're just living it. Yeah, well, <laughs> Amazing. somebody's got to do it. Uh, <laughs> might as well be me. Excellent. Ed, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure chatting. Uh, thank great you, book. Congratulations. Yeah, Appreciate it. Uh, great book. For having me. Thanks, yeah. Ed. You bet. All right. There we go. Once again, that was Ed Gross. It's Voices from Krypton. 
the unofficial, unauthorized history of Superman. And as we said, you can get it from bookstores everywhere right now, so definitely check it out. Why don't we bring in our third guest here? He has a zoo project that is killing it right now. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Hello. What's going on? What's going on? Hey. Um, welcome. Wow. Thank you for hanging out. Thank you for chatting. I love the background. You got your comic right behind yes. you. Um, I'm going to mangle the name. I'm sorry, but La Boracania? Is that... That's good, man. That's okay. Good. I mean, we are like, you know, nerds that can learn Klingon or <laughs> throw Elvish. You know what I mean? I think we can learn some Spanish. I think so. Yeah, too. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, yo, that, that cocktail. Come on, y'all. Come on. Red Sun, yeah. Kryptonite. Red Sun. No, I know, I know, I, I missed it. I'm sorry. Look at the, the, the logo, the Kirby crackling Red Sun in the background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Come on, you guys just lost a lot of like, like <laughs> points. I'm not that. familiar with the Superman character that much, so there we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, this book is great. It is uh, coming back, I guess is the best way to put it, or this is a new volume, new printing, new edition of the comic, new collection. Uh, how would you describe it? Because again, well, I'm mangling things like, here a little bit. If, if we're, I guess, into the thousands of pages, which it isn't, yeah. it would possibly be an omnibus, but this is gonna be our first collected edition. So it's volume one. And what it's doing is putting together the first uh, four full-length graphic novels that I've published, which are issued one through three including the fourth book, which is a team-up graphic novel with Rosario Dawson. And these books have been uh, published under my studio, Somos Alte, over the last seven years. And we've had the, luck, the, the opportunity of having these books taught at Princeton, MIT, Penn State, my alma mater of Colgate University, across the United States and in Puerto Rico. And it's an opportunity for schools, libraries, or even just collectors to have all of the graphic novels in one hardcover edition. Oftentimes, um, when our books are distributed to public schools across the US, for example, we get a lot of support from the Penn Faulkner Foundation in Washington, DC. These graphic novels get into the hands of children and you know, they're, they're paperbacks. So they don't have that much durability. That's why children's books are made in, in hardcover. So the idea for this is it's, it's, it's the library edition, right? It's, yeah perfectly on, on, a, on a library shelf and for school, local library, university, museum. Um, uh, there's a museum that uh, has the first issue of La Borinquena in its permanent collection, which is the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And a museum that's gonna be opening in the near future, Lucas Museum. Um, they actually purchased a collection of our hardcovers for uh, their library. And they also have um, original art that they've purchased from our collection, which is also gonna be part of their um, permanent collection as well. So, you know, for like a very small imprint like ours to have the opportunity to find ourselves in so many institutions uh, beyond, you know, fandom, uh, I think it's a great chance to finally be able to put this into a hardcover um, edition. And, you know, working with the, the fellas at Zoop, uh, Jordan and Eric, you know, they're an, they've created an incredible model that really supports independent artists and storytellers like myself, you know. Uh, oftentimes we are uh, a one-man band. We do for order mm. fulfillment, marketing, publicity, events, uh, packaging, uh, print production. And with Zoop, you know, they, they're actually doing a lot of that for us. So one of the main reasons why we didn't decide to do this 100% independently 
was the logistics. Where the heck are we going to put a whole bunch of hardcover books? It's real. It's real. And these are also oversized. They're going to be like 9 by 12, which is like way larger than a typical um, comic book. So it's, it's exciting. It really is exciting to have this. And, you know, we are uh, very fortunate that um, cover artist Ariel uh, Jesus Colon, who just made his debut with DC Comics last fall, he donated the art for this um, uh, that's uh, awesome. This collection. So it's going to be never before seen art. And we also have a collection of like over 50 pinup illustrations where all of these different artists have interpreted uh, La Borinquena from uh, Bill Sankiewicz to uh, Carlos Pacheco. So there are so many artists in the industry that I look up to that have been um, um, working with us through this through this project. So it's exciting to finally have it. You know, I'm in my office where I'm like, I'm literally surrounded by bookshelves. Yeah. <laughs> you You're know? in the book right now. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's great to actually have like um, book space, bookshelf space for my hardcover. And I'm going to be and I can see it going right next to the, the, the new frontier slip, slip mm -hmm. case edition that I have that Darwin Cook um, um, was um, the illustrator and writer for, you know? So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's an exciting project. It's big. And, uh, yeah. And one of the things that we're really like, um, um excited about is that this is going to continue to support our, our philanthropic work which really started when we did this first team-up book with um dc comics um mm -hmm. and talking about you know superman you know he was actually um featured in this book was pre, um written by uh greg pock that was mm -hmm. illustrated by oh, Ken awesome. and this was an interesting conversation because while we were working on this book uh dc had a uh I was going to say pantless, but it feels like he was pantless when he didn't have the right. <laughs> right? Um, and they were, you know, behind the scenes, there was there was buzz that, you know, Superman was going to go back to his red trunk. So I was like, uh, put him back in his red trunks for this book, you know? And <laughs> I was kind of like, you know, going back and forth about that. And I was like, look, I'm going to put out this book right around the time when you guys officially announced that he's back in his red trunk. So they gave me permission to put him in his red trunks um, wow. for this book. And, uh, so yeah, so it's 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 an interesting space, and also I enjoyed listening to your show because I'm like I can see so many like uh, uh, kind of like uh, similar points, particularly with your previous guest um, uh, Ed Rose, because uh, Superman was an, a big influence in, in me creating uh, La Borinquena from the costume to the character. Mm -hmm. um, and well, yeah, uh, can you can you take it back and tell us about La Borinquena, like what like her origin like how how the story works like because I, I think so, so, so story was really inspired by social economic issues affecting puerto rico which is a, a u.s colony that has been now for the last um century and uh there are three million um puerto Ricanos living in the archipelago with um u.s citizenship and six million including myself across the united states but so even my great grandparents who were born there were born U.S. citizens and have served in the military for since before World War One, right? The character herself is a college student who visits Puerto Rico because she wants to study abroad and also be there to take care of her parent, her grandparents rather, who are retired. But as typical uh, senior citizens and grandparents, they're very very busy running a restaurant now. So she goes to Puerto Rico to kind of like take a semester abroad. But while she's there, she's faced with the realities of an island that's in a uh, calamity because of this failing economy, because of the reality of climate change. And I pull all of these real world themes into the book, but also connected to the mythology of Puerto Rico. And obviously in the same space of talking about Superman, 
we know that Superman is the archetype that's inspired by by Moses, by the Old Testament, and how so many other superheroes draw their inspiration from from mythology. That's what mm -hmm. I did also with La Boriqueña. Puerto Rico has its own um, indigenous people, the Tainos, who had their own mythologies. They believed in a mother goddess, a mother goddess that was connected to the elements. So therefore, she imbues this character that I created with superhuman, supernatural abilities to control the elements. Through By controlling the winds, she can fly. Her superhuman strength comes from one of the other deities, uh, Yukahu, who is the, the, the god of the seas and the mountains. And so she has superhuman strength, which allows her to save the day, which allows her to finally start to recognize that these powers are going to help deal with what is a real issue affecting people even today. I mean, oftentimes these are tropes that find themselves in comics, you know, evil corporations taking over, uh, what you would call it, uh, evil experimentation, creating, you know, mutants. And that's a real thing that's connected to Puerto Rico's history. A lot of people may not know that like a lot of cancer research was experimented on, on Puerto Rican men. Um, a lot of Puerto Rican women were sterilized so that birth control pills could be created. So I take these mm -hmm. tropes and apply them and supernatural villains and superhuman villains come out of the stories. Um, we may have been familiar with, uh, urban legends like the Chupacabra that actually is originally from Puerto Rico. So a lot of those kind of like ideas of folk tale or urban legends work with this story. So it's, it's, it's classic superhero storytelling with a superhero who has these superhuman powers. And this graphic novel is putting together, rather this is some hardcover editions, putting together seven years of storytelling. So it's four graphic novels, it's a, it's a full complete story arc, the origin story, the introduction of her of her um, team of superheroes that she actually leads, and her first major confrontation with a supervillain and uh, and the kind of like the big enemy of the of the larger story, and kind of like it, it also uh, continues and kind of comes together with the final story, which actually brings Rosario Dawson as herself. It's kind of like some <laughs> Ruby Doo mystery, right? With with a celebrity. <laughs> it's in the book, in the book as herself. You know, and there's even some a couple of Ahsoka Tano jokes in the in the comic book because being her friend, oh, that's I hilarious. Tano like years before it was even announced, so I knew the book was gonna come out later. So I was like, oh, I could drop in some. I could drop. Oh, in wow, here, that's you know? yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you actually about the celebrity thing because obviously you have Rosario Dawson here. It sounds like you guys are friends. Uh, you've also worked with DMC. You worked with John Leguizamo. Um, as comic book fans, I think sometimes we see a book that has a celebrity attached. We're like, all right, prove it to us. So yeah. what? what's the trick there then? What's the trick when you bring in a celebrity? Is it that you already know that they have an affinity towards the comic book material? Is it coaching them in some way? What's it's your a technique? A both. There? You yeah. know, um, I've been fortunate that in the case of John Leguizamo and Daryl McDaniel, DMC, they both were comic book fans. Right, yeah. John comes from it from a different perspective because he's been very outspoken as an advocate for Latino rights and representation, and has been in, doing an incredibly brilliant job from Hollywood Reporter to Washington Post, and even has a series now on um, on um, MSNBC that was just renewed for a second season. Um, yeah. But genuinely, he and Daryl, they were they're both nerds. They're both comic mm. book geeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the viability of comic book storytelling. I think that's the real way to look at it, right? They didn't look at it as, oh, let's make a comic book so that we can fast track this into a TV or film. It was more like, 
let me make a comic book because that's way cheaper to do than a movie or an animated series. And also it's a, it's, there's no, there's no budget that's going to limit the special effects, you know, mm-hmm. the same yeah. pay rate that you give your artists, whether there's a, a, a major city explosion or someone sitting on their sofa eating a sandwich, it's the same production budget, you know? Mm-hmm. And, so, and then like, you know, Daryl more than like John was a huge comic book fan for Daryl. Bring him We've into interviewed it. him and he is like a crazy comic book. Head. Yeah. I mean, like deep the thing in. is like, if you listen, if you do a deep dive into his run DMC songs, he, it was there all the time. Mm-hmm. It was there yeah. all the time. There's a famous Rolling Stone article that was uh, published uh, when they were at the height of their stardom cover story. And when you read through that article, the journalist is literally like commenting how like Daryl is in his own world on the side of the backstage reading comics. And this, yeah. this was like, this was Daryl at 18, 19 years old when he's about to go on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And what is he doing? He's reading comic books. And that's like, that was his, that was his, uh, his reality. And, 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 and for these guys, like John came in with really solid ideas for Daryl. It was a lot more fun because I was able to create a universe for him. I was mm-hmm. able to create a universe and I did kind of like this kind of multiversal version of him. Like what if he never became an MC and what if in this universe, he actually became a, a superhero. So it took place in the eighties and we were the first comic book to actually bring in real graffiti artists to actually draw mm-hmm. in the actual comic book pages. And the New York times had reported about that because no one before then, um, since then some, some there have been now some collaboration, but we were the first ones to do that. And that was just 10 years ago, you know, I mean, given that hip hop has been around now for 50 years, it took 40 years before hip hop got into an actual legitimate comic book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we got a question here from the comments. I think I know the answer to this one, but Derek Maynard says, where does La Born Kenya stand on U.S. statehood? That's a very good question. I personally don't have an answer that many people may expect because since I live here in the United States, I don't live in Puerto Rico and I don't pay taxes in Puerto Rico. And I think personally, the mere fact that I make an answer to that is very kind of like colonial in a way. So my idea mm. is that I think that I like what uh, Congresswomen uh, Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are doing. They're trying to pass legislation so that Puerto Ricans can actually tell us. Can choose, yeah. Yes, I think they I think they totally have the, uh, what's more called it? The author- well, they don't have the authority, but they should have the authority, the right to yeah. tell us what they want. And I think what I do with my platform is I try to create um, um, an audience, a conversation to engage people. I do a lot of work in Puerto Rico. I support a lot of nonprofits with our grants programs. We've raised and awarded close to $200,000 in micro grants. And a lot of the work that we do is invested in, in, in giving a voice and more than anything, giving a voice so that, good example, it was a CNN um, did a travel story and they interviewed me in this article i actually um name dropped and referred them to organizations that were connected to because i wanted to give them an opportunity to have a voice so that they could talk about their puerto rican experience i live in brooklyn you know my my in my experience and my my storytelling it's still even though it's inspired by reality it's still steeped in fantasy mm-hmm. you know I, it's i you know i try to tell people like you got to remember that the main character in the story wears a cape and flies <laughs> you may be inspired by reality but it's still a superhero comic book and i think sometimes yeah. people get a little um and over invested which is beautiful because oftentimes comic books take us to 
completely fictional places like Wakanda or Metro Metropolis, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and what I love about this book is it, it's rooted in like real great superhero storytelling. The, 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 the uh, volume one, like the first uh, story, like it's like invincible. The art is so good. Uh, Superman elements. There's elements of like, and the origin, like, remind me of Darkhawk, some of those old 90s stuff, like, mixed in there. Like, it's a great soup. But also, there's just so much Puerto Rican culture here. It's, like, baked into it in a way that I think is just a great – not a lot of comics confuse those real-life details with just great comic book storytelling. Thank you. And, I you know, I mean, I grew up as a fan. You know, I recently had the opportunity to have a great um, conversation with Chris Claremont, who's one of my heroes as a, as a storyteller. And I still have my lawn boxes from the 70s and 80s when I was in elementary and middle school. And that has, that's like my PhD. That is, yeah. Right. And, you know, I think we all do, but I specifically can speak for myself that I love the era I grew up in with comic books because comics didn't pander. Comics were for everybody. And I didn't realize that. I thought when I was like 10 or 13 reading X-Men that they were for me. And then I learned, I would learn years later that there were people in their thirties and forties and the eighties that were reading X-Men, you know, because yeah. it, 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 we didn't have to have a rack just for the kiddies. You know what I mean? It was like that same X-Men that I read somebody 20 or 30 years older than me was reading. So that's a lot of what I do with my books. And, you know, we have children in elementary schools reading La Kenya, and we have graduate students reading La Kenya, And that does, blows me away that 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 model that I grew up in, I've been able to kind of emulate with my stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, since the soup has been so successful, we haven't said the numbers here, but as of right now, you were looking for 15,000. You are up to almost 22,500 uh, with 10 days left, which is awesome. Are you beyond this volume, which sounds great and people should definitely pick up? Are you looking to make more of it? Are you looking to expand the series? What is the plan? Yeah, so what's next is um, one of the things that we started doing um, in the uh, fourth book, which teams up La Borinquena with Rosario Dawson, we introduced a whole team of superheroes, right? And yeah. uh, we just did a spinoff of one of those characters. This character is called Oro in Coquirodado, which is go the golden um, tree frog, right? This actually was created by my seven-year-old son, his character design. Oh, that's awesome. Uh -huh. And then I took his character design and fully developed. It's gonna it's gonna become an action figure line that's produced by a ah. studio that'll be released in time for the holidays. Yeah. So the idea is we're gonna we're gonna launch individual issues for the actual um, team members. So they don't get a graphic novel, but they get a standalone issue. Um, and then uh, the next book we're coming out is actually um, inspired by not inspired. It's gonna be a spinoff of her best friend. Um, Luz, who's an Asian Latina um, character that was introduced in the first book. By the third book, she becomes a, a superhero. So she's going to have her own spinoff that's going to be coming out in a couple of months. And the goal is that by the time the fourth issue come out, we'll have all of these like sh one shots in between. So then Laborenguena 4 will drop. And after Laborenguena 4, then you'll have Odo number 2 and all these other like issue number 2s. And that's going to be what will in the future comprise of um, the second volume. So it's not only going to be the La Borinquena stories, but it's going to be all of the, the spinoffs because everything is still kind of like connected into one larger uh, story arc. And uh, we're also in pre-production for our uh, fourth graphic novel that we're um, hoping to have um, for fall of uh, 2024. 
And you know, I'm a, I'm a one man band, just me and my wife. Yeah. Son, yeah. I was gonna say this is a lifestyle. This is just a yeah. book. Well, and your and life. your seven year old son. He's yeah, in creative yeah, development. Right? I just creative. want to say, don't forget. Creative team. Yeah, he so. is. He is. We actually just reminded me. He's supposed to give me a drawing that we're supposed to include in this um hardcover edition. <laughs> And like a behind-the-scenes sketch of the original um, character. You, you tell him you are only as good as the deadlines that you hit. All right, just yeah, tell him. Send him a strongly him. worded email because you know these creators are not paying. They're out of control. They're out of control. What is he now? What is this Gen Z? I don't know how many generations. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, Edgar, this is great. Thank you so much for coming on. This book is awesome. Congratulations on all the success. And I'm excited to read all of the spinoffs coming out. Thank you so much, guys. And thank you for doing this show and keeping the culture alive and keeping it nerdy yeah. and keeping it geeky. I love it. Oh, uh, we know, do. Always. We do. And same, it's, same. It's a great opportunity. And and next time, guys, for real, it's a red sun cocktail that you made. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> No, it's gone now. It's gone. <laughs> it's, it's all over. It's all over. All right. Next time we'll do a pina colada. That'll be way easier. Exactly. Oh, yeah. We don't have to name it. Yeah. Exactly. Where's the exactly. Where's the La Born Canya cocktail? We gotta get. Yeah. That next time we'll do it next time. Absolutely. There we go. There we go. Thank you, fellas. Thank you for having me on your Thank show, you. man. All Take right. Care. Have a good night. All right. There we go. Once again, it's La Born Kenya. You could check it out on Zoop now to pledge and get that great collected volume. Um, it's very cool. And we are going to move on with our next section, which is my favorite section because you make it up. It is your audience questions. And for audience questions, all you got to do is drop a question in the comments on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. They can be about absolutely anything is fine. It's a, it's a great time for a real P question that we can answer without him being here. You know what I mean? Ooh, really throw him <laughs> under the bus? No, no, a question that we can actually tell the truth about without him yelling at yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, if you got questions about X Men or Spider Man marriages or anything like that, now's the show to do it. Yeah. Uh, what are you? Uh, you still drinking? You you finished up? No, I finished my Red Sun. Uh, moving on to uh, a little Wolf uh, mm. beer, uh, nice. very nice pale ale uh, from uh, this is a good brewery, Zero Gravity. Oh, nice. Uh, well, cool. I, I guess that's it for our audience questions, then. Uh, we've covered pretty much everything. I did want to follow wow. up. Uh, no, I did want to follow up. I know we talked about it briefly, but, oh, well, I guess this actually follows up on it. Uh, what I was going to talk about, Frederico Rosa says, which hero will no Nicholas Holt finally get the part? So the question here, Nicholas Holt tried out for Batman. He didn't oh. get it. Nicholas Holt was supposed to go in for Lex Luthor was the report. And then he was like, no, no, I want to try out for Superman. And he didn't get it. Um, yeah. So poor guy. All he's got is all of these other projects he's doing and his incredible talent. Uh, but what, what superhero do you want Nicholas Holt as since he didn't get Batman uh, or Superman? I mean, I don't know. Haven't we cast everybody? Isn't that already sort of mm -hmm. covered? Well, the other thing is he could still be Batman. You know, like they haven't cast a, the Batman of the DCU yet. Uh, that's fair. I mean, and let me throw out like uh, he could be um, like a scarecrow. He could mm -hmm. be someone like that, I think, makes a lot of sense. Lex Luthor? No, nah, I don't know about Lex Luthor. Yeah. I, I think we need the young Lex Luthor thing. We got to get He's got to be older. I think. Mm -hmm. Even if Superman's younger, Lex Luthor should be older, I think. 
Well, they he's, also... he's so conservative. He's hardened. He's anti-immigrant in the space, in mm-hmm. the planetary way. I think he needs to be an older, like hardened person. I will say my, one of my favorite comments I saw on Twitter was somebody saying that Nicholas Holt thinking he could be a better Superman than whoever eventually gets Superman is Lex Luthor 100%. Oh, that's a great call. <laughs> that he could be the real life Lex Luthor. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. I was kind of thinking, like, it's probably wrong, but one of the, a Green Lantern, like, I could see it was a Green Lantern kind of messing up, you know? But I don't know. Honestly, the first thing I think of looking at a picture of him is he's Tobey Maguire from Spider-Man 3. When he's under the venom influence, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guy. Um, all right, we got a generic one here. Uh, Derek asks, generic? Asks, no, no, no. I'm saying it's not specifically about like uh, Superman movies or whatever. It's a general question. General question, uh, not generic general. question. Derek says, as the writer's strike drags on, and oh boy, is it dragging on, huh? What past shows do you yeah. recommend to binge? Uh, great question. Um, I'm doing well. For, this week I rewatched The Rocketeer. I tried to show my like make my kids watch it, and they were mm-hmm. like, "We want to change this." I was like, "No, we're watching this to the end." They were like, "This is violent." I'm like, "Yeah, there's a lot of guns," uh, but that's a great rewatch. Um, I'm rewatching slash watching Letter Kenny on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but current shows, if you haven't watched The Bear yet. You gotta watch the bear. Yeah, that's the thing about the past shows to recommend to binge. The writer strike hasn't really affected much yet. We're gonna see the effects yeah. probably. I don't know. Not, maybe not even the fall. The fall a little bit with the broadcast season. Um, uh, but, you'll feel it in that there won't be uh, your rec- returning shows. But as far as yeah. new shows on streamers, you, I don't think you'll feel it until uh, next year. Uh, this is from Stray Bullet. Don't tell Pete I asked this, but I think MJ Peter Parker is boring. What do you guys think? I mean, let me throw out there. I know I'm alone in sort of liking this recent Zeb Wells story uh, mm-hmm. where they're um, separated and she's with someone else and all that. But part of the reason I like it is that it's creating some space and tension between them when their relationship in the deep past was sort of like, just very static and not super exciting. And then after all of the uh, marriage breakup, it was sort of nothing in a weird, empty way. So, like, I like that there's some heat and something going on with them right now. Yeah. This is from Kevin. What other comics characters would you like to see get oral histories? Justin, do you have an answer for that one? Uh, My first thought is Captain America, I feel like, sort of Mm. the Marvel uh, Superman equivalent as a character that has a real long history that has less media, but I think more you could connect it to uh, Mm -hmm. larger politics and and war and whatnot. And my second answer, though, before you say yours real quick, is the Punisher is sort of a darker answer. Ooh, that would be cool. I, this is literally nothing against our guest, but I am generally more interested in micro oral histories, oral histories that focus on a, like a very narrow, very specific thing and flesh it out with a big story about that thing. You mean like a, that's called a conversation, I think. No, uh, no, I mean something like, rather than being like, we're talking about encompassing the entire history of this thing more, we're going to dive into a moment. I'll give you a very specific example. So. One Tree Hill is a show that I've never watched in my life. I never watched it because I was like, 
what is this about? This is two brothers who play basketball. I don't know what's going on here. I don't care about this. And that's what I always thought the show was, even though people were like, no, it's a seminal teen show. You're going to love it. And I'm like, I don't, I do not have time to watch seven seasons of the show about basketball boys. But somebody put up a clip being like, this is my favorite clip of all time from One Tree Hill. And I, I almost hesitate to spoil it, but just to kind of lay out what happens if you don't know what happens, it's in the sixth or seventh season. There's a guy who's supposed to get a heart transplant in the hospital, and this intern comes in carrying the heart that he's supposed to have the transplant, trips and falls in the lobby of the hospital. Yes. The heart slides out. A dog comes over, eats the heart, and runs away. And then it cuts to Chad Michael Murray staring at him and just like nodding as if he did it somehow. And then it cuts to the director credit immediately in the middle of Chad Michael Murray. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. There was, I don't remember who put it up, but somebody did a insanely extensive oral history just on that scene and the development of that scene where they talked to basically everybody involved, plus Mike Schur, the uh, the showrunner of uh, Parks and Rec and The Good Place and a Good bunch place. of other things, yeah. because apparently that's something he talks about in every single writer's room. It's about, like, what is our dog eating a heart from One Tree Hill? So they talk to him about that moment. And the funniest that's note funny. in there is, like, you get about several thousand words in the world history, and there's an editor note that says, Chad Michael Murray declined to comment for this story, which, hilarious. That so, says it all. That's that your thing. favorite comic book? Yeah, I love that comic book, One Tree Hill, and now I've read all the issues. No, but my point is, like, I love deep ties into something like that. So just in terms of a character, like, Penance is something where it's so specific. It's not long, but just the thought process that went into, we're going to turn Speedball into wearing an Iron Maiden on his body. What went into that with hindsight now, I think would be great. Uh, that would be interesting because I feel like that was a series of weird decisions that uh, sort of heightened and uh, followed up on one another. Where Because that was right when the New Warriors caused the explosion in mm-hmm. um, Hartford, I believe, Connecticut, which led to civil uh, civil war, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that he felt guilt about that because he was like one of the only New Warriors that survived. So that guilt led him to need to punish himself, which led to the spikes on penance and that changed his power set and his powers messed up because of the explosion, just like a series of disastrous choices, ruining one of the only like funny, goofy characters that was in the Marvel universe. Yeah. This one I actually don't know anything about, but I'm curious to hear if you do. This is from Stray Beans. Can you comment on Eric July claiming his saving the American comic industry by selling 40,000 copies of a first issue? and 13,000 copies of a second issue of a generic superhero comic. I'm going to take away from this that probably he didn't, certainly based on that amount of sales. He definitely didn't, but I don't know who this is or what the circumstances are. I don't know anything about this. Um, I don't know what it is or what um, this is. But Eric July definitely talked tweeting about Comic-Con being in trouble um, since all of the... uh, TV has been sort of backing out um, is all I can see. And Eric July is the brother of Eric August. Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah. Good. I don't, I don't know anything about this. I'm sorry, Straight Beans. Uh, this is from Pablo D. Martinez. What do you think of the trailer for Five Nights at Freddy's that came out 
I'll admit I watched the teaser trailer, which seemed fine. I did not watch the full trailer. Have you have you seen that, Justin? I have also not. Mm, great. This is good. We're doing a good job. Uh, let's see. Mike Spear Jr. says, what? Do you have an answer to that one? Um, y- yes. Uh, the answer is more. Great. Uh, this is from Kevin. Did something fall in the basement? <laughs> Uh, well, there's a lot happening, weirdly, in this current. Uh, the My downstairs neighbors are throwing snaps, the little, the little oh, yeah. things that pop out front here while they're moving chairs around upstairs. So, like, it's a, an annoying thing. I'll tell you that. Uh, what if MJ got together with Michelangelo? Would Pete approve? Uh, that might be a big... First off, the April O'Neil uh, erasure is uh, worrisome for Pete. Though yes. April O'Neil and MJ sort of, I don't know, they, they would probably get along. Both have red hair. Similar so, energy. Yeah. I think he would probably still be upset, would be my guess, because MJ belongs with Peter in his opinion, and that's it. This is from Edward Doherty. If you could choose one comic or series to have just the dialogue rewritten without changing anything else, what would it be? Who? Sort of a burn. Writer burn. Choose one comic or series to have just the dialogue rerun. And just the dialogue is an interesting call. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind recently is the issue of the uh, Captain America crossover that's been happening where Mm -hmm. um, Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson have a fight that is dumb. Yeah. (laughs) And if we could just change a lot of the things, the reasons why and what was said, I think would be better. Back in the day at Marvel, they had a month of Nuff Said issues that were all silent. They should redo the dialogue on those. Add some, you want to have me add, add a, add you, a bunch of you words. You want to do like a, a micro uh, oral history. Yes. On top of those issues. Uh, let's see if there's anything else. Uh, ooh, this is a controversial one. Mike Cancel says, why does each new MCO show get progressively worse? What do you think about that? Do you agree with that, Justin? Uh, tough. I don't know if they're getting progressively worse. I think they're just, uh, they've plateaued in a very intense way to me. And I think it's because they're using sort of a broken model to make these shows and there's not enough time or creative juice, or I guess time to allow more creative storytelling to happen. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing also is that for production reasons, and COVID reasons, WandaVision went first, and that just happened to be the one with the biggest creative swings and weirdest choices out of the gate. So it was a sort of chance that that happened. We probably would have been watching uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier first and been disappointed early. There you go. In a non-COVID world. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, just to wrap up here, this is from Kevin. If you could answer any question as Pete, what would it be? And answer is Pete. Mm. I know what the answer would be. I mean, there any question could fit in. It would be just like "fuck you." Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> it's worth it for Pete. the art, art alone. <laughs> my friend Pete yelling. I mean, no, no one in my life, even like uh, my most mortal enemy, has ever. Uh, said harsher words to me than my good friend Peter Page. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think we've answered it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, all right. I guess that's it for your audience questions. Now, since Pete isn't here, we are going to skip trivia 
Yeah, and we couldn't. Go, I started looking through the obituaries, and it was just too dark to come up with uh, somebody who died to really highlight it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, anything. That's any, how he does it. Any any deaths in particular you want to call out from the past couple? Yeah, of, uh, <laughs> Justin. Uh, be, That's what I'm saying. It's Pete's our our mortician. Uh, I do want to say before we wrap up the show here, we do have a sponsor for this week's episode here on Comic Book Club. We love comics and we love kids. So, of course, we love the podcast Comics with My Kids. Here's the story. A comic book loving dad wanted to share his love and passion for reading comics with his two kids. So Matt decided to introduce the kiddos to comics and podcasting. Now each week, Matt with Logan or Melody will read a family friendly comic, collected edition or graphic novel to share with fellow listeners and help spread the joy of reading comics. There are also creator interviews that spotlight their work, and they're starting up a summer reading campaign where they will post a reading list for future episodes so listeners both young and old can email in or give an audio clip with their opinions on the books. You can check out Comics With My Kids on comiccornerbox.blogspot.com for episodes and written reviews for the whole family, on Facebook at Comics With My Kids, on Twitter at Comics With My Kids, and of course, you can hear the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Beautiful. That sounds like an absolute blast. Yes. Speaking of absolute blast, there is a blast of new comics coming out this week. So, Justin, what are you looking forward to? Oh, great question, Alex. And you know what? Uh, The first thing that I've been saying uh, many times, I think every issue this comic has come out um, is, well, first, Blue Book number five, closing up the series, uh, which has been really fun. very, very much looking forward to that. But the the real one I want to highlight is the seasons have teeth number oh, three. Yeah. Man, written by Dan Waters. I from Boom like this book is crushing it. It's about a uh, a world that's not post apocalyptic, I guess, where the seasons have become sort of giant monsters. Not necessarily kaiju, but sort of like more mystical versions of that. And this photographer is trying to take pictures of them all chasing them down over the course of these first three issues and and having this like self uh, meditation about the choices in his life. And it is so good. One of my favorite reads. I'm very curious about the oddly pedestrian life of Christopher chaos. Number one from dark horse comics. This comes from an idea from James Tyne in the fourth. And it's written by Tate Bromble. Who's been collaborating with a lot, a lot of hype on this book. So curious to check that out. And I'll also give a shout out to the Riddler year one from Paul Dano and Stephen. Interesting. Subic. I just am really into this book. It's a spinoff of the Batman, but it is uh, punching above his weight. Is that the expression? Whatever it is. Uh, you could say that in a yeah. boxing sense. Sure. Uh, I will say uh, I have enjoyed this series. This issue specifically, I was like, maybe. Yes, I was looking forward to this is what I say. And we'll talk more about all of these books on the Stack podcast. Yes. Uh, real quick, Derek Mainhart in the comments, The Neighbors 4. Uh, also another like that book is scary. Yes, very upsetting and scary. We're going to be talking about that as well on our Stack Podcast that comes out Wednesday, 9 a.m. in the Comic Book Club feed and its dedicated Stack feed. And folks, that is it for this week's show. A couple of people we want to thank. We want to thank Ayuse Jama Everett for coming on to talk about The Last Count of Monte Cristo, Ed Gross for talking about Voices from Krypton, and Ardgardo Miranda Rodriguez for talking about La Borinquena, Volume 1 on Zoop. Next week... 
We don't have a show. It's July 4th. We're not going to do it. 4th of July. 4th of July. Yeah. Make a mess. I assume we will probably still do a stack podcast, but there will be no live podcast. However, we will be back on July 11th with Shane Berryhill to talk about comic books kill and Megan Bowman and Rachel Briner to talk about Dear Rosie. We have a bunch of other podcasts that are running in the meantime. Sons of a Gun, (laughs) our DC podcast is coming out weekly. Marvel Vision, our Marvel podcast, also coming out weekly. Recap and Secret Invasion right now. Riverdale After Dark, our Riverdale podcast, also coming out weekly after episodes of that show air. Patreon.com slash comic book club. Support this show and all the shows we do. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice at Comic Book Live on Twitter. Comic Book Club Live on TikTok and Instagram. ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, good night. Good night, everybody. Yo, friend,